This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. I'm Larry Gifford. I am a member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. I uh, host the podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, and I am a co-founder of the organization PD Avengers. It's great to be here with you today. Today's panelists will be discussing how to manage our emotions uh, and navigate the early years of Parkinson's, which is not always talked about so much, but boy, it can be an emotional roller coaster. Uh, I was diagnosed in 2017, so you know, five years in, I've, I feel like I'm ready to get off the train. <laughs> but uh, we'll also cover the valuable role people recently diagnosed can play in research. This is really important. And we've got a lot of this to discuss today, so I want to get started. Uh, let me first introduce our panelists. Uh, great panel today. We have Barry Gray. He's a nonfiction a uh, TV producer and writer, book editor from Los Angeles. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2021. He's a participant in the foundation's landmark progression, uh, Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, also known as PPMI. And uh, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But Barry, welcome to the webinar. Thank you, Larry. It's great to be here. Uh, we also have Dr. Sonia Mather. She is the co-chair of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. She's been living with the Parkinson's for about 24 years, and she is also a co-founder of PD Avengers. Hello, Sonia. Hi, Larry. Thanks. And uh, welcome to uh, Dr. Roseanne Dobkin. She's professor of psychology at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School at Rutgers. She's been conducting mental health research in Parkinson's disease for nearly 20 years. She's also on the PPMI Executive Steering Committee. Uh, and welcome to you, Roseanne. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. Happy to be here. So I am uh, really excited about this discussion today. Uh, you know, managing emotions can be really tough. And I, I know like even uh, two or three years into it, my wife started to notice I, I had a quicker temper and, you know, or I'd, I'd cry at the drop of hat. I'm like, what's going on to me? Uh, everyone processes Parkinson's diagnosis differently and people may experience a, a range of emotions. Uh, Barry and Sonia and I will share our personal reflections on the diagnosis and the emotion in the early days. And then uh, Dr. Dobkin can, can then explain to us what's going on <laughs> and how we can work through those in a positive way. Uh, so, Barry, I'm going to start with you. Uh, when you were diagnosed, uh, who, well, boy, what were the rush of emotions you, you, you went through? Um, <laughs> still the main one, which is disbelief. I never thought that something like Parkinson's was going to involve me and I suppose a lot of people probably would react the same way. And I was doubting it. And, you know, it's in the face of overwhelming evidence uh, since then, it's absurd. I realized that that uh, that I had any moment of doubt about it because it's 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 it is what it is. Uh, and my my reaction was uh, disbelief and denial and um, hoping that it was just a mistake and that it would go away or that uh, it was misdiagnosed, it, it was it was a common cold, it was nothing else than that. It, I, I, I grab onto anything, really, because that first moment when when the doctor says, you know, the P word, um, 
it's devastating. There, there's just no way around it. It's just devastating. And you, you, you're grasping at straws, wondering, what did I do wrong? Uh, how am I going to live with this? How am I going to, am I going to be a drag on my family? They're going to have to, you're going to have to take care of me for the rest of my life. It's, it's just a whirlwind of emotion. And I, I can't really tell you how did I react to it? Because when you're in the middle of the storm, you know, you're not thinking really clearly about, hey, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I should approach this a different way. Uh, you're just, you know, my, my, my rule of thumb is at, at very first, uh, panic. So, uh, I think that's probably as good a descript, uh, description as I could come up with. Well, and you're only a year in too, and just over yeah. a year in. And so like, you're still processing that you're still in the early days. Uh, cause I know I, I still go through emotional, uh, roller coasters. Sonia, you've, you've had Parkinson's for over 20 years now. Uh, do you remember what you felt uh, when you first were diagnosed? <laughs> Yeah, no, I do, Larry. Um, I mean, that was a very uh, unsettling and inconvenient time in my life to be diagnosed. I was 28. I just was pregnant with my first child and started medical practice and all sorts of things. So um, my first reaction really was much like Barry's, you know, disbelief. And um, it's sort of disbelief in, in an emotional sense, you know, the logical medical side of me knew I had the diagnosis and that they were not incorrect about it, but it, that emotional acceptance wasn't there. And so that led to basically a decade of living in denial and anger and, and uh, secrecy and basically, you know, busying myself with the busyness of life so I didn't have to deal with it. So that was my first reaction. Yeah, I, I remember just yeah, I was kind of like Barry. I was shocked. I denied it. And then I got angry, and then I was afraid. Uh, you know, it's 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 as if we've I've had to mourn my past life and mourn what future plans we had, and and go through that grief process and start over. Uh, and just like if you're grieving a loved one, it's not linear. It's it can happen. Any of those uh, emotions can happen at any time. Let's bring in uh, Dr. Dobkin. These we're, we're not weird, right? This is kind of a normal process. One hundred percent. Emotions are healthy. They are adaptive, and they are to be expected. You know, receiving a diagnosis like Parkinson's is life changing, and it takes time to come to terms with things, to figure out how you feel about it. And let's be honest. People are going to feel many different emotions, possibly at the same time, and that is to be expected. And we want to allow ourselves to feel whatever we feel. Um, we don't want to try to stifle those emotions or push them away because that is only going to be harmful in the long run. Um, and as we are taking whatever time we need to adjust to the diagnosis and to this news that was just shared with us. We also have to begin to think about, okay, how are we going to put together the best possible care team? Um, how are we going to mobilize our supports? How are we going to arm ourselves with every tool out there so that we can be empowered and proactive and live the best life possible with this chronic medical condition? And it is possible to live a meaningful and productive and values-based life with PD. And it takes some time to figure out personally how to make that happen. But people figure it out at their own rate and at their own pace. 
Yeah, and, and a lot of that takes the accepting of the disease in order to get to that point where then you can figure out how to live your best life with it. Because it, 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 as long as you're denying that you have it, you, you, you can't move forward in that direction. Sonia, what was the catalyst to, to turn you from denial into acceptance and then, and, and then sharing that with other people? Sure. Well, I call myself a slow learner because it took me a good 10 years <laughs> before I really got to that acceptance. I mean, the, as I mentioned, the, the logical acceptance was there. I knew I had the disease, but that emotional acceptance, that, that, you know, feeling that, okay, there's nothing I can do about this. How can I frame it a different way so that I can progress with my life? That true acceptance didn't come about like after some epiphany. It, it came about slowly. I was changing into a person that I didn't like. I was being pessimistic about life. And it was a time in my life when I really had much to be thankful for and grateful for, except for this over overlying diagnosis. So it wasn't one thing, one conversation, one thing I read. It, it was a slow evolution. But eventually I got to that point of you know, accepting that this was a challenge I was going to have to face and I could either face it with a glass half empty outlook or a glass half full. And um, that that helped me anyway and uh, and helped me to move on beyond my diagnosis so that you could do the things that you're mentioning. You can sort of, you know, deal with the diagnosis in, in a way that's productive and healthy for you and will lead to the best outcomes. And when did you start to tell people? Oh, um, I get... <laughs> I'm again a little bit slow in that regard. I mean, my husband and you know a couple of close friends knew, so they could sort of help me hide the situation from from the larger social group. But social group probably I started about nine, ten years into my diagnosis. Coworkers again and patients. It took about that much time because I didn't want to be viewed differently um, in my in my practice and so forth. That kind of stigma that unfortunately we we all face to some degree. Um, with Parkinson's disease, which shouldn't be, but, you know, we're human, it is. Um, and so, yeah, but I, I, when I did disclose, I, I felt a weight lifted, one that I actually didn't know had existed in the first place. So I, I kind of regret not doing it sooner, but that's, that's reality. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Barry, how about you? Uh, have, have, have you found a way to embrace the diagnosis yet? Well, yeah. And, you know, just listening um, to the doctors, uh, I just realized that I had a clue in 2009 that I ignored. And that is that I have become especially emotional over ridiculous things. And it, it happened first that I recall that year. But I mean, I, I could I could start weeping at, at an avocado commercial. It was just ridiculous and uh, anything. And I didn't understand it. And I was telling people, oh, you know, um, the older I get, the more emotional I get. I thought it was supposed to be the other way around. I didn't understand it. And I, I, I tried not to think of it as an issue, but it kept happening again and again and again. And that can, along with um, almost a dozen symptoms uh, that are standard for Parkinson's that I recognize I had. And I, I, you know, the little light bulb went on and, oh, you know, it's, it's real. And, you know, I, the only person I told at first was, of course, my wife. We have a 23-year-old daughter who's extremely sensitive, and she was in her senior year of college. And I said, Anne, we do not tell Lulu until school is effectively over for her or there's a, a logical time. Because she was away at school, and it would have devastated her in, in school. And we didn't want that. And there was nothing she could do about it anyway. And she was in Illinois, and I'm in California. And so the the difficult thing about this was, it was, I was throwing my arms up, my hands up, 
because in the space of four months, in the space of four months, I uh, was diagnosed with a uh, anti uh, an autoimmune autoimmune di uh, disease. Um, I was found to have cancer, um, and then two weeks after the cancer diagnosis, oh, by the way, you have Parkinson's too. And it was like a bad dream that I couldn't wake up from. It was like dominoes hitting each other, knocking each other down. Um, and I just thought, you know, what What else can go wrong? Is the sky going to fall on me next? Um, yeah. So I was, I was and, and am dealing with, you know, trying to keep all the balls in the air as to, you know, which which disease is 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 the worst, and which one do I have to give the most attention to? Well, and uh, Dr. Dobkin, that's that's unfortunately the case. Is like once you get Parkinson's, you're still susceptible to all these other diseases too. It's not you don't get a free pass, and that's that's got to build up. But how how do you how do you work through that? It really is a lot, especially when you're facing, you know, one medical challenge or complication, you know, followed by the next, followed by the next. And, you know, as difficult as it is, we have to try to be in the moment and not get so far ahead of ourselves and focus on the next thing that we have to attend to and also talk to ourselves. I mean, I think the reality is we're all talking to ourselves all of the time, but most people don't really stop and think about what they're saying to themselves unless you've got a psychologist like me saying, hmm, what was running through your mind right now? And I think our self-talk is so important, you know, reminding ourselves that we, we don't like this and that's okay, but we can handle it. You know, we can figure out a game plan. We can move forward um, one step at a time and that we will be able to handle whatever life throws at us next. And we will figure out, again, the, the best support team, um, the best partners to help us along on that journey because um, we don't have to go through it alone. Well, and one of the interesting uh, notes about the symptoms of Parkinson's is that depression, anxiety and apathy are symptoms of the disease and not just reactions to the disease. I know that I experienced all three of those. And my wife used to call it when I was really apathetic, I'd be in my little Parkinson's bubble. And I would <laughs> I wouldn't notice what the kid needed help or I would, you know, I just I would just be in my own world. How do you how do you escape from that uh, ap apathetic state? Or do you have any mm -hmm. tips or tricks? Um, I sure do. Um, and before I even go there, I just want to really echo what you just said, that these emotional complications, things like depression, anxiety, apathy, these are core symptoms, core features of Parkinson's. Parkinson's is not just about physical symptoms like tremor. They're they are not a sign of weakness um, or poor coping or, you know, character defect. These are core symptoms of the medical condition that are highly treatable. So I just want to make sure that we we put that stigma off to the side. Um, in terms of, you know, well, how do we manage these negative emotions? What do we do about them? How do we handle them? Uh, I could talk for three hours, uh, but in about two minutes, I'll, I'll try to, to share some of my favorite, you know, tips and tricks. 
Um, you know, I think first and foremost, we hear a lot about exercise for managing physical health and Parkinson's. Exercise is also critically important for optimizing emotional health. It reduces stress hormones. Um, it boosts feel-good chemicals in our brain. Um, so exercise is so important. Some studies have shown that if an individual exercises, you know, 45 minutes three times a week, and I'm hoping that we're all out there exercising, you know, 45 minutes most days, but even a minimum, 45 minutes, three times a week, over a six week period of time, the uh, emotional effects of the exercise are comparable to that of antidepressant medication. You know, so exercise is critical. Um, you know, maintaining other healthy lifestyle habits, you know, good nutrition, getting adequate sleep at night, um, connecting with the people, places, and things that enable you to experience joy and meaning and reward and satisfaction during the day. And I know when apathy sets in, when depression sets in, individuals don't always feel like doing it. You know, they may say to me, oh, Dr. Dopkin, you know, I would love to go to that concert in the park, but I just, I don't feel like it. I have, I have to wait until I want to do it. And then my response is typically, well, if we're going to wait until you want to do it, we're going to be waiting for a really long time. Um, because when we're feeling depressed or anxious or apathetic, that internal want, that internal zest, that internal enthusiasm might not be there. So what we want to do is we want to think about our values. We want to think about our goals. Um, let the goal guide the behavior. Plan mini experiments for yourself. Test something out and see how you feel. Because usually if you can get yourself to engage, you know, to go to the concert, to return a phone call, to make plans for dinner, to go out for a walk, you'll feel better once you do it. And then it'll be easier to do it a second and a third time. So we don't want to wait for the want. We want to set a goal and then let the goal guide us until that internal drive comes back and it will. Oh, that's great. Uh, you know, I know oftentimes in order to prepare for an outing, uh, I might take my walking sticks just to give me a wider berth around the, the crowd so I don't get as anxious. Or uh, my wife and I will have uh, silent signals to let her know that I'm not feeling very comfortable and that we need to go. Uh, or if I can't remember somebody's name and I'm trying to introduce them, I won't say their name and she'll know that I don't know their name and she'll she'll introduce herself and she'll ask what their name is. So just having those in advance can be very helpful. Sonia, do you have any uh, any, any ways of dealing with, with some of those uh, issues? Yes. Um, I mean, I think for me, accountability is a big thing. And I think that works for a lot of people. So that if I plan on doing a walk every day to have a, a friend come to the door, knock on my door at eight in the morning to say, let's go and being accountable to them in, in order to, to carry out whatever task or goal I set is helpful or having a personal trainer knock on my door three times a week and say, let's go, let's do this. I mean, I, I find that to be very helpful for me. What about you, Barry? Have you found any, any uh, personal ways that you deal with some of these uh, issues that have pop up? Yeah, I had heard um, shortly after my, my diagnosis that exercise was key. And my wife happened to find online um, something about uh, an organization called Rocksteady Boxing. And it seems that it turns out that boxing is an ideal kind of training um, for Parkinson's patients. And this, this program is geared specifically toward people like me. Um, so I, I do that once a week, which is totally inadequate, and I know that. Um, but I try to mimic um, a lot of the uh, exercises uh, at the house here. We have a, a makeshift uh, a gym here, 
And um, I'm, I'm used doing it four or five times a week, but I now know just from today's webinar that uh, I got to do 45 minutes, not 20 minutes or 25 minutes. So that, <laughs> thank you guys for that. Um, uh, I wish I could walk more, but my lower back hates me lately. So that took, you know, one element out of a regular program. But um, just the extra, just getting into the exercises and, and getting used to them and building them into my, my daily schedule, uh, uh, it gives me structure. And I never understood the apathy that I was feeling ever since I got diagnosed. And now I realize uh, it's not just mental laziness on my part. Uh, it's part of the disease, which I did not yeah. know before. So I'm going to cut yeah. myself a little bit of slack. Please do. Please do. You should not feel guilty or bad about the way you feel because you can't necessarily always control the emotions that are headed your way or or the apathy or the the depression or the anxiety even. Uh, I, I do want to get back to uh, crying at avocado commercials because I was choking <laughs> on that line. I love that. Uh, but Dr. Dobkin, is there a is there a scientific reason why uh, Parkinson's impacts the your, our emotions so much. So, so yes, there is. You know, our our brain um, is amazing, and the areas of the brain that control movement are also involved um, in the regulation of emotion, how we feel, how we think about things. So, even in you know the earliest stages and phases of Parkinson's, individuals are experiencing changes, um, not only with respect to, you know, the availability of, you know, those feel-good neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, but there's some changes taking place in, you know, the amount of activity that's occurring in certain neighborhoods in the brain and in the highways that connect, the networks that connect um, the, the different areas of the brain. And all of those changes can lead to changes in emotion um, as well as movement and thought and cognition. Great. I also want to tell you about PPMI. Um, Foundation's landmark study, uh, the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, also known as PPMI, is recruiting volunteers. That could be you. Uh, the PPMI follows participants, collects data over time. Uh, the information helps researchers better understand Parkinson's because it's hard to understand some days, uh, most days, and could lead to new ways we treat uh, or even prevent the disease from onsetting. People recently diagnosed with Parkinson's and not yet taking medication are prime candidates. Uh, they can play a critical role. And let's talk about why some studies like PPMI especially need people recently diagnosed with Parkinson's. I know, Sonia, you've been involved in, in, in research for a long time. Why, why is it critical that people early on uh, are involved in some of these research? Yeah, thanks, Larry. Um, I think in being involved with research is important for everybody at every stage of Parkinson's disease, because without us, there can be no clinical trials. We need to we need to have people with the disease in order to study potential treatments or or learn more about this disease and, and its and its um, pathology. So that's the first thing. Early in the disease, it's it's important because especially when you're trying to get a longitudinal look at, at how the disease is progressing, what factors might be influencing that progression, for instance, demographically or otherwise. Um, and also a lot of interventional trials 
um, perhaps maybe preventative or, or disease modifying. And they often um, involve earlier onset patients that maybe aren't on any medications and are drug naive, what we call, um, in order to sort of test potential uh, treatments that would slow down the progression of the disease. So there are many reasons to participate, um, and, and those are some specific ones for early early participation. Great, thank you. And I'm gonna bring in Dr. Dobkin here, who's on the steering committee uh, uh, for PPMI. Uh, what, what, what do you find most uh, rewarding so far about the PPMI study and, and, and how can pe people participate even if they don't have Parkinson's? Uh, so there, there's so much to, to talk about. Um, I want to further, you know, highlight a point that um, Sonia just made and, and really focus on something called um, the golden year, um, or in, in some cases, the golden year. So this is a period of time, you know, after an individual um, is diagnosed with Parkinson's, um, but before they begin taking um, medication to help treat the symptoms of PD. And this is the absolute um, critical time for individuals to enroll in studies like PPMI or, you know, other early stage or other clinical trials that are looking at the development of novel therapeutics. You know, it's so important in order to advance the field, in order to develop better treatments for Parkinson's and ultimately figure out how to stop it, how to prevent it altogether. We really need to understand the complex biology of PD, um, you know, and on the biological level, how how is the disease starting? Um, how is it changing over time? And once we can really begin to better understand what's happening, we're going to be able to have better tools that assist with diagnosis, treatment, um, and ultimate prevention. Once an individual starts taking Parkinson's medication, it kind of muddies the water a little bit, and it makes it more difficult to study these biological processes as they naturally unfold. Um, so that's why it's so important um, if individuals are able to participate in studies like PPMI before you start taking medication so we can really learn what's happening on the biological level in order to develop better treatments and ultimately slow or stop the disease from even beginning in the first place. Um, you know, the other point I really want to make about research is, you know, everybody talks about Parkinson's being progressive, which it is, but we really need to focus on the fact that science is progressive. Um, and we can be empowered, you know, we can be agents of change. We can influence, you know, the rate and the pace of scientific progress um, and discovery by participating in research. And it is a critical opportunity to not only be empowered in one's own self-care, but to really play an instrumental role um, in advancing the field. That's great. Uh, Barry, I know, I mean, you're only a year past your diagnosis, but you're already enrolled in PPMI. How did you make that decision? It was really pretty easy. I mean, uh, shortly after I got diagnosed, uh, I looked up the foundation online and uh, saw a pitch for it. And I thought, why would I not? Why would I not sign up for this, this um, program? Uh, the study because you know it can only help people it can only help me maybe in some direct or indirect way and i don't yeah i don't see any reason why, why i wouldn't and uh, i have not started uh, me any medications and and i asked my neurologist can i stay off of them as long as possible um and he sort of he sort of said yes but he looked like he was holding back something and in fact, I'm going to see him, I think, a week or two from now. So I'm going to ask him again. 
Um, but I really, I had heard so many stories about how miraculous uh, L-DOPA is, but it also has lots of side effects. And I was hoping to avoid those side effects as long as possible. What I need to know for sure is whether I'm harming myself by delaying it because my, my symptoms are really pretty mild right now. The worst that I have is that I have very poor balance and I tend to, you know, tip over like, uh, you know, like a, a poorly built tower of Pisa. Um, and that happens a lot. I fell three times in the, uh, in a, a couple of months after I was diagnosed and one of them, uh, I face planted and broke two, two of my front teeth. Oh. Um, and it, it was really horrible because you, you, you're, you, you, you go down really fast, but it feels like slow motion. It's like yeah. you're seeing it happen and you can't stop it. And in a way that's almost an analogy. Uh, for for Parkinson's, uh, and God willing, there will be something to stop it. Maybe from this research that you know the, the program that I joined. For sure, yeah. Real quick uh, lesson on falling: once you've fallen, just stay there for a second and catch your breath because the worst part's over. And then you know, try to feel for your body to make sure nothing's broken. If you've broken your teeth, then you know that. Too. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, afterwards, make sure you go see a physical therapist because they can realign you so you don't keep falling. Because once you fall once, it's easier to fall twice than third time. So just to, to get off the off the main topic for a second, okay. you brought that up. I had falling issues too, so I understand how that goes. Um, Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Also, uh, PPMI Online is available to anybody in the United States over the age of 18. Uh, other studies are also recruiting family members, uh, and they can join in to show their support as well. So uh, if, if you are interested, please uh, visit the, the PPMI uh, study online, and we would love to have you participate. All right, seeking support over time. You know, uh, as Parkinson's progresses, uh, progresses uh, and advances, and you go into your one year if you're Barry, your five years if you're Larry, and your 20 some years if you're Sonia, uh, it, it changes and evolves over time. Um, how, Sonia, has your care and your, your, your disease progressed over the years? Um, well, Larry, as, as we all know, it's a progressive disease and um, it has progressed over the years. Um, what well, started off as an intermittent tremor in my pinky finger, then evolved into the hand and then the foot and then the other side and, and so on and so forth. And then came the onslaught of more noticeable motor, non-motor symptoms like you know sleep disorder and, and pain and, and um, balance issues and, and now more off periods. And so it's, it's an ever evolving disease. There's no shortage of challenges that will face you, but at each point, you have to kind of re realign, realign how you're thinking about the disease as well. You know, at one time, it used to really frustrate me that I couldn't get my to-do list done. And then I had to realign and say, well, maybe my to-do list is just a little too much right now. So reduce it. Or who can I rely on to help me get things done? Um, how can I, you know, minim, um, delegate more and that sort of thing? So it, it, it does progress physically and in your emotional state also progresses. There are days where I feel pessimistic. I feel down about the future. But then again, I have to talk to myself, as Roseanne said, and um, realign my thinking to sort of deal with whatever's facing me at that moment. In addition to your uh, you know, movement disorder specialist and your GP, who are some of the other uh, care, carers that you rely on, uh, you know, therapists or whatever? 
Um, as far as allied health professionals go, I have a massage therapist that I use quite frequently. I also have an exercise specialist um, who who I use to help me with my exercise routine. Um, I've seen a speech and language pathologist as well because I had issues with swallowing and you know um, potential aspiration. So I, I've seen a speech and language pathologist. Um, and those are the current ones. But I mean, there's so many available to us. And, and that, that whole team building, um, gathering people surrounded surrounding yourself with people that have your ultimate um, quality of life in mind um, is, is really, really important for, for anyone that's dealing with this disease. You know, and one of the great things as you move along in, in, in the disease is you get to know these professionals better because you see them more and more. I see my pharmacist more than I see my wife sometimes. I, I walk into a pharmacy, I feel like Norm from Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, but I, I also, I have a mental health uh, counselor. I've got an uh, occupational therapist, a physical therapist, a, a uh, um, you know, speech therapist, um, you know, and I don't see them all at the same time, but th these are all people that are now part of my support. Uh, and, and it's, I think it's really important. And sometimes you need to, just like uh, you go in for a, a regular physical with your GP, Oftentimes, before the symptoms start to onset, it can be very valuable for you to learn uh, how to, you know, speak with, you know, uh, strongly and, you know, and, and with intention before you need to, so you can develop those muscles. Or, uh, you know, I, the, the occupational therapist for me was one of the, just blew my mind. She walked me through my day, and I realized where I was losing my energy because I was, I'd get so tired. And so she she started with like when you wake up in the morning and get in the shower and she's like so you're standing in the shower you've got your eyes closed you're back to the water your head's turned back and you've got Parkinson's so you have balance issues she goes How, what kind of energy do you think you're wasting before you even have breakfast so I bought a shower chair and it changed my life like just those little things can make a huge difference and these professionals can really help you um, what are talk, uh, Dr. Dobkin, talk about the, the kind of support uh, folks uh, can get from, from somebody like you. Oh, I would be happy to. So I am a clinical psychologist um, and I provide, you know, both one-on-one -on -one, um, as well as group talk therapy um, to help individuals deal as effectively as possible with the non-motor symptoms, with the emotional concerns that go hand in hand um, with living day in and day out um, with Parkinson's. And I think working with a mental health professional, psychologist, a counselor, a social worker, um, at some point, even if it's for prevention, um, can be really beneficial to really arm yourself with coping skills, with all the different tools that one can utilize to manage the understandable um, emotional reactions that arise in response to um, daily challenges and stressors um, that people experience. Um, there are so many different tools that can help an individual to manage anxiety, to manage depression, to feel more connected, to work on acceptance of the diagnosis. Um, and there's no reason to struggle or to suffer alone. Um, there are many, many people out there that can provide support and structure and skills and guidance to help you um, along the way. And, you know, oftentimes I will see individuals maybe for 
three or four months when they're going through a more difficult period of time. And then we kind of just touch base a couple times a year to make sure things are going well and, and, and to kind of catch up and review all of the tips and tricks and coping skills that an individual can utilize to help themselves deal as effectively as possible with, you know, challenging life circumstances. You know, an analogy that I like to use is that if, if you're living with Parkinson's and you're also dealing with sort of poorly treated depression or anxiety, you're going through your day with an extra 25 pounds of potatoes on your back. And we don't need to do that. Let's, let's get rid of the sack of potatoes. Please. I think I may have a couple. I, I also think it's important that um, people understand the power that they do have and how they react to things that come their way. And that can change your entire day. Like mm-hmm. if you wake up with a new pain, you can either be really angry about it or you can go, okay, well, so what are we going to do today to, 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 to work around this or to, to work with this? Uh, and and, and I, I think my life changed when I stopped resisting the disease and I embraced it. Uh, so oftentimes when you resist something, it becomes stronger because you're putting more energy towards it. And when I just realized that I breathed through it, I found a way to say, okay, well, this is going to be part of our life now. How are we going to move forward together with this? And my wife and I, uh, I think it's really important. Communication is so important to share with with your loved one or your your, your partner exactly what you're feeling and thinking and, and how it's affecting you because there, nobody can understand what's happening inside your body. Even, even other people with Parkinson's, it's, everybody's Parkinson's is so different. Mm-hmm. All right, so we've been through a lot here. Uh, and you know, the, you've got all sorts of support that on your screen. You can see, for example, the Buddy Network. Uh, that's a great place to go. Faith-based groups, support groups, online communities. I mean, COVID brought us, brought the world together online. And so there's so many opportunities out there. Uh, and and like, you can even build your own uh, customs. Like uh, there's like uh, 10 couples uh, in Vancouver where I live, where uh, we go out to dinner once, uh, once a quarter, uh, just as a group. and. Uh, have a great time, and we we know we can call on each other at any time, and so it's 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 nice to have that. Um, but I I do want to get to some of the Q and A because uh, there's a lot of interest in this topic. So I've got some here that I'll start with, and uh, we'll we'll go from here. And these, these I'll either direct them or I'll keep them open ended, and any of them any of you can chime in. Any suggestions for helping balance the emotions between the person with Parkinson's? and those of a spouse who is also a primary caregiver. People living with PD as well as their family members, um, you know, are going on this journey together. And friends, family, spouses are also feeling as though they are on um, an emotional roller coaster from time to time, you know, trying to make meaning and make sense of things. It is so important um, if you're a loved one, a spouse, um, a care partner um, of a person living with PD, especially at the around the time of diagnosis, to get some extra support for yourself as well, um, to potentially reach out to um, a mental health professional or join a group that is geared towards family members um, of people living with PD, um, because everybody is going through this together and support needs may be very different um, if you're a care partner or if you are um, a person that's actually been diagnosed with the medical condition personally. Um, And we wanna make sure that everybody seeks out the personalized help that is going to be most beneficial. 
Sonia, it looks like you want to chime in there. Well, I, I just, I, I'm kind of chuckling to myself because I can chuckle looking back at, you know, what Aaron, who you know, and, and myself went through at the beginning. Um, as I was coming to terms with my diagnosis, so was he. Um, but he was specifically coming to terms with how to deal with my coping with my diagnosis. So for instance, if I was trying to open a pickle jar and I was having trouble, some days he could, you know, if he, he if he said, can I help you with that pickle jar? It was kind of like he'd get snapped at, well, what do you think? I'm disabled. I can't open this pickle jar. Or if he didn't ask, then it'd be like, well, can't you see I'm struggling? Can't you help? <laughs> so to navigate that whole situation is very difficult for care partners. And I began to recognize that unless I was open and honest about my communication, about what my needs were, and not be ashamed to express those needs, um, it, it would have been very difficult. So coming to that realization that, you know, your your partner is there to support you, um, I think is is very important uh, to maintain that communication. Yeah, my wife and I uh, we host the podcast with Life Gives You Parkinson's. And earlier this year, we did a three three episode arc on the talk, and it was just us talking about the communication changes like we we're both communicators by trade and for the first 20 years of our life we had shorthand you know we we knew exactly what each other were thinking and we, we, we there was no question about how we were communicating and then parkinson's came along and like upended everything uh and so we had to relearn how to communicate how to you know how, how to be intimate and, and everything and so i think it's really important that you have that open discussion and that open dialogue i think that's uh, a, a critical piece of, of the of the Parkinson's, and sometimes that can't happen until you, you know, each side has has dealt with it. But as far as getting support for everybody, like my son, my wife, and I, we each have our own therapist because we, we're all dealing with it in a different way. And I think that's really powerful. Barry, do you have any thoughts on this topic? Um, yeah, I hate to strike the same note again, but uh, for me, uh, it's been my wife who has been. Um, the go-getter uh, on all of this stuff. She's the one that found the boxing program. She's she's the one that uh, insists that we have to remodel the bathroom because the way it's configured now, you have to step down into the tub to take a shower, and you, it's easy to trip. It's really easy to fall and hit your hit your head. And she's saying, you know, we gotta we gotta do this, we gotta do that, we gotta replace the shower. And and I'm thinking, I I don't have any terrible horrible things to justify that, but you know, I really kind of do. Uh, my wife's always been, by the way, her name is Anne. She's always been um, really uh, proactive in a lot of ways. And it's really come into play, and, and especially about um, emotionally um, being, I, I have sensed probably incorrectly that I've been treated differently. Uh, and maybe, maybe people are um, uh, trying to uh, see what happened. I've got brain fog now. It's uh, all right. What I'm trying to well, say let me is just that... say this, Barry. Anne and Aaron and my wife Rebecca, uh, we're so fortunate to have them to, to support us. But Dr. Dobkin, what if you are alone? What if you don't have a partner? Do you have any advice for folks on navigating these emotional journeys when they're by themselves? Yeah, that it's presents a whole separate set of of challenges for sure. And you know, the first recommendation I would make would be to think about. Um, you know, the the social circle that that does exist, you know, are there a couple of, of close friends um, or family members that you might feel most comfortable 
you know, reaching out to connecting with. Um, maybe it doesn't feel comfortable to discuss, uh, you know, your innermost thoughts and feelings about the diagnosis, but just having people to connect with, to spend time with, so that you don't feel um, as alone or as isolated, um, that can be really helpful. Uh, many people find, um, you know, great companionship and understanding in support groups. Um, although support groups are not for everybody. Um, some people really love to attend and share, other people rather not, but they're, they're an option for consideration. Um, you know, joining exercise programs, um, you know, there, there's Rocksteady, there, there are dance for PD programs, becoming more involved in non-Parkinson's related community activities in order to strengthen um, those social ties and connections, that can be really beneficial. Uh, you know, starting even earlier with regards to building that multidisciplinary healthcare team. So even if you feel like you don't necessarily need all the professionals right now, you know, maybe go for a PT consult, meet with a speech therapist, you know, really get ahead of the curve, um, learn what you can learn now, empower yourself so that you can pull all the levers that you're able to reach um, in order to take control to the extent possible of um, what you're learning, what you're doing, how you're coping, how you're feeling, how you're responding. Thank you. I think that's really powerful. And there, there's all sorts of uh, great classes out there that, that folks with Parkinson's and then folks without Parkinson's take, whether it's a writing seminar where you get to meet people or writing you know, class or, or I, I do like improvisation theater and take classes with that. Like there's all sorts of great activities out there. And, and Parkinson's actually gives you permission to do the things that you've always wanted to do, but never did. Now you've got a reason to go, well, I got Parkinson's. Now I can do this. <laughs> uh, at least that's the case for me. That's, that's, that's my reason for doing crazy things now. Um, Sonia, there's, there's some questions from the uh, audience about when you're diagnosed with Parkinson's as a young mother, uh, do you have any advice? Sure, Larry. I mean, that was my life in the beginning because all three of my daughters were born after my diagnosis. I was expecting my first when I was diagnosed. Um, and I think, you know, we're all struck, as, especially in, in this day and age of trying to be the super mom, trying to do everything. So I really had to, first of all, redefine what that meant to me. Was it that I had to keep up with all the other moms? Did I have to go to all the soccer games? Did I have to do all the art stuff with them? Did or, or is parenting or being a good parent mean um, raising well-adjusted, you know, independent, compassionate individuals while providing them with a safe, loving home so that they can go out and make themselves a positive force in the world? So it was just that shift in thinking that that was my main goal, not keeping up with the bake sales and the, and the soccer games and that sort of thing. I also had to sort of reevaluate how I did things because I wanted to do everything myself, but I had to recognize that, you know, I had to accept help, I had to sort of create my own village to help raise my children. And that was a big help to me as well. Um, the other thing that help was helpful was um, not allowing guilt to impact my parenting, because it's very easy to, to feel guilty about maybe missed games or, um, you know, them having to watch TV a little bit more while my meds kicked in and that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I think that we can't allow that guilt to impact our parenting. We're still, we're still parents after all. And um, for us and our family, we recognized that this was a life experience that was there and we used it as a teaching moment for, for my kids. I was afraid, you know, when I had them that they would really be um, in, um, burdened with this 
my diagnosis. And I, I was very upset by that. But I recognize now that what they've learned from this experience is actually that life's not perfect. And life not being perfect means that you have to face it in a certain way. And how you face those challenges is really going to define you as a person. And so my children are now 24, 22, and 17. And um, they, they've really learned a lot in terms of charity and empathy and, and um, again, that, that we're going to be faced with challenges and, and they'll have to face it in a positive way. Um, I feel like I'm walking a tightrope uh, between not wanting to be a burden to anybody, uh, especially the other two people in my family, but knowing that I'm going to need help and, and not knowing how to ask for and also, you know, um, sometimes I feel like people are being a little bit simple with me because, well, you know, maybe Barry's got some brain fog. You know, I, I say things like, you know, I'm I'm stupid, but I'm not dumb, uh, and all kinds of you know ridiculous mal malaprops. But I mean, the point is, I don't really know where to, to where to ask for help, uh, where that ends, and trying to go it alone, which I realize, of course, you know. Uh, realistically, I can't do, but uh, I want to do it as long as I can. I don't want to be a burden to my family. I think that's really common. I know I, I, I've been through that as well. Uh, doc, Dr. Dopkin, I think there's two things here. There's the family members that, that don't know how to help. And then there's the, the people with Parkinson's who aren't sure how much help they should ask for. Do you have any advice on how to balance mm -hmm. that out? Mm -hmm. um, so let, let's try to address those two points because they're so important separately. Um, as, as far as the family members maybe not knowing how to help, you know, what's going to be perceived as beneficial versus maybe off-putting, there's no substitute for having a conversation um, in your own way um, and so that the words come out naturally. They don't sound like they're coming from your psychologist. You know, speak with your loved one. What would be helpful for you? How can I support you? What would you like me to do? What do you really want me to stay away from um, and not go near and not approach? Oftentimes, loving, caring, best intention family members don't have the conversation. They try to figure it out on their own. They guess and they guess wrong. Um, so it, it's okay to ask. Um, and it's okay, it's okay for the conversation to be ongoing. And the answer is going to change. The needs are going to change over time. And that's okay, too. Um, in the context of marriages, in the context of a family, we're always, whether we recognize it or not, you know, at, at one point in time, we're wearing the hat of, um, you know, the supporter. Uh, and other times we're wearing the hat of the support recipient. Um, you know, it's a two-way street and, and it goes both ways. Um, you know, relationships are never 50-50. It's always, you know, 60-40, 70-30. But whoever's holding the 60% or the 40%, you know, it shifts back and forth. So we're playing both of those roles in a creative way all of the time, in a dynamic way um, in, in the context of our relationships. So I think it's important to remember that. And as far as, you know, knowing when to ask for help um, and when to try to do things, you know, independently, you have to feel your way. I think it's important to maintain as much independence as one can, but it's also important to be able to mobilize supports 
um, when you need to, as you need to, and not take unnecessary chances that could compromise one's safety. So I think it's it's about experimenting, um, trying to do some things independently, and and asking for help, and trying to figure out you know where that where that sweet spot lies because it's not all or none; it's a little bit of both. Yeah, and like the, I, I find just asking, um, you know, uh, how can I help you, or do you need some help? Is is efficient because like sometimes I'm trying to button my shirt and I can't get it, but I I want to keep trying, or uh, trying to open the pickle jar or whatever it is, and, and I I may ultimately go I can't do it, uh, but I'd like to at least give it a shot. Um, now the another example is if I'm cooking and I'm flailing the knife all around recklessly with dyskinesia. Uh, my wife will just take the knife and go, yeah, I'm going to take over that duty right now. It's, she's going to, she's not, it's not even going to be a question. So I think that there, you know, when it becomes an issue of safety, you know, the, the, the care partners and the you know, friends or whoever's around can, can really oftentimes see things more clearly than we can, because if we're going through a dyskinetic phase, we're, we're off our meds and we're not quite clear thinking as uh, maybe we should be when we're doing those things. Let's ask a few more questions. We've got five more minutes here. Um, okay. Do antidepressants interfere with Parkinson's medications? So I'll, I'll jump in and um, offer a response. Uh, in general, no. However, you know, it's very important to have the conversation with your personal health care team about medications that you're on, medications that you may like to try, you know, what the advantages are and you know what the potential interaction effects may be um, you know there have been some you know concerns um, that have been raised in the past with the use of antidepressants with some of the parkinson's um, medications particularly the um, maob inhibitors um, some concern about interaction effects and, and serotonin syndrome um, more recent research suggests that for most people you know, taking an antidepressant with an MAOB that you're taking for Parkinson's is likely to be okay, but it's something that needs to be reviewed by your doctor and your pharmacist to make sure that the dosages are correct and that you know how to monitor for side effects that could potentially arise. After 14 years, I'm still asking, why me? Is this normal? Will I ever get past this and accept my PD? I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, I think that you have to work at it. You have to. It, it's it's not going to happen without you putting some time and effort into it, and some uh, and, and and working on yourself, and really, uh, and that takes time with a counselor or 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 meditation practice or what, yoga or whatever it is for you to to get to that place where you can be accepting of what what has come your way. Yes, you'll you'll get there. I mean, I went through a long period of why me, but um, I got to the point where it was, the question was more like, why not me? Um, you know, better me than maybe someone that didn't have the ability to cope with the disease, maybe better me than a loved one that, that has the disease. Because I have a lot of respect for care partners. I think it's much easier to deal with the effects of the disease to wit than to witness it in someone that you love. So um, yeah, you get eventually to the point, I'd say, um, where it changes to why not me. And then I also wanted to add that the process is, is not linear. You know, some days are definitely easier. Some days are definitely harder. Um, and if you find that you are continuing 
to have difficulties for a prolonged period of time, you know, I definitely want to echo the importance of, you know, maybe reaching out and, and speaking with a counselor for a couple yes. of sessions or maybe longer to try to work through some of those thoughts and feelings. Um, because while all emotions are understandable and, and all reactions um, are, are to be expected, when the reaction is prolonged and when it's associated with significant distress and it's starting to really get in the way and make life harder, I think that those are good signs. Those are good signals to maybe reach out for some short-term um, professional guidance. That's okay, really we have about two, two, yeah. two minutes left. So I'm gonna ask one question. We all get to answer it. What's the most important things to do or what are the most important things to do after being diagnosed with Parkinson's? Sonia, I'll start with you. Um, first, educate yourself. Educate yourself about the disease, the potential treatments, what what is a side effect versus a symptom, um, and then set yourself up with a team of experts that are all sort of motivated to help you with your quality of life and optimize your quality of life. Barry? I would say take your apathy and throw it out the window. Um, <laughs> get rid of it and get going. Um, and that's the biggest lesson I learned from my wife who you know, was way faster to react to, uh, to all this than, than I was. Um, so apathy, it really sucks. Get rid of it. Doctor? Do not allow yourself to be defined by the diagnosis. You have Parkinson's, but you are not Parkinson's. It is possible to live a meaningful, happy, productive life with a chronic medical condition. And we want to focus on taking control, being proactive, and being empowered. And I would say... Um... One of the first things you should do when you get diagnosed is uh, begin to tell your close friends and family or your close family so they can help begin to support you uh, and find those, you know, figure out what is causing you the most trouble in your everyday life so you can tell your doctors what it is about the Parkinson's that's giving you the most trouble so they can address that first. Um, th th this is a you're a lifelong progressive disease. So you need to make sure that you really focus on the things that are disrupting your the the best life you can live and, and address those and laugh a lot. I, we laugh a lot in our house. Every glass we break, we just laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I want to thank uh, the panel for being here. I want to thank the, the folks who, who tuned in online. And uh, I want to thank the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. Uh, this was a, a great webinar. I enjoyed being here. Hope you learned a lot. I know I certainly did. And I, I, we, I think we could probably talk for a couple of hours on this topic. But thanks so much. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. <laughs>